This is the Deep Color podcast series. Deep Color is an oral history project where I talk with artists about their work and their lives. The ultimate goal here is to give listeners a better understanding about the experiences and people behind the artwork. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. These recordings are casual, straight on, and unscripted. Deep Color is independently produced and a free resource for listeners. Please consider making a donation through the support page at deepcolorpodcast.com. Your continued support and belief in this project is incredibly important, and I thank you for your generosity. This episode profiles Rochelle Dang. Rochelle makes installation-based work and sculpture. A recent installation featured a reconstruction of a copper seed transportation case, ceramic breadfruit sculptures, and a digitally altered reproduction of panoramic wallpaper that Rochelle first encountered at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Newer works include stephanotis flowers and vines that have been carefully molded out of paper clay and weaved through chain-link fence partitions. A new seed-carrying case has been fabricated out of metal and resembles a tomb or a dollhouse. Rochelle's work is full of thoughtful reflection and craft and considers the relationships between colonial legacies, migration, botanical sciences, and personal history. We recorded this conversation at her studio in the Bed-Stuy section of Brooklyn. Take note of what I was feeling on this day and yes. this moment. So. Yeah, that's good. And I think that's kind of kind of what working in the studio is like mm-hmm. sometimes. You have an idea and you're focused on it, but then these tangents occur, mm-hmm. whether through the material or the, or the idea develops. And with any luck, we follow those tangents and it brings us to somewhere. Mm-hmm. new and interesting does it ever happen like that for you mm-hmm. yeah there's a isamu noguchi quote where he says there something like there are two kinds of artists mm-hmm. artists who figure out what they want to make and then they go ahead and make it and then there are other artists who make something and then figure out what they made yeah but i think there is something in between that which is really good for me mm-hmm. because i i can see something in my mind without um, drawing it. And right. I want to have that experience of something happens. There's a journey, there are tangents along the way. And that um, sculpture, that installation coming to life is um, a journey I take and the work takes a journey as well. Yeah. And it, it goes somewhere. Um, uh, unpredictable things happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's well said. I Sometimes I've heard the phrase that the hands are smarter than the head. <laughs> or the head is smarter than the hands, depending on what type of artist you are, what type of person. Mm-hmm. Um, I sometimes think that my hands are smarter than my head. Like, t- like I figure the thing out after, mm-hmm. I, like what the idea mm-hmm. is behind it after it's made. One of the paradoxes of this project also is, is you know, we're, in a, we're, we're, we're visual artists, yet we're, here we are sort of using verbal language to describe things that are visual, right? Um, mm-hmm. And we rely on storytelling and uh, uh, you know, descriptive words and, and metaphor and, and analogy. And, you know, there's varying degrees of comfort with, with artists and, and how comfortable they are talking about your, their art. Mm-hmm. You strike me as someone that's very comfortable talking about your work. I think because the you project know? stays with me months or even a couple of years at a time. So over that time, I've had a lot of uh, opportunities to to reflect on it and to have conversations with people. And I think when we've spoken about some of my work, it's lived publicly several times. And so the, the public setting um, 
finalizes, not finalizes, activates yeah. the work through viewers who talk with me, through maybe things people write about it, or just conversations with mentors and friends. And then I was thinking how if you asked me about the current work in progress, which is maybe two-thirds or four-fifths done, mm -hmm. but it has not been activated. It's I see. Not in a space, yeah. and my work is often site-specific. It hasn't really left the studio, right? It hasn't left the studio, yeah. and I've had very, very few conversations. So I myself don't fully know what it is. Yeah. And that's the mystery of making. Yeah. And I won't, and even with the current project that it's had several, uh, the, the, sh the project I recently finished that has had several iterations publicly, each time it exhibits new things, it becomes something new, like new things open up, I learn more about it. And so to talk about something that is only four-fifths realized, two-thirds realized, I, it's, it's, uh, I'm happy with it, but it's unsettling. Yeah. And embarrassing to talk about. Yeah. In a way. Sometimes. Yeah, because it's literally a work in progress, both mm -hmm. the form as well as like how we think about it mm -hmm. and how we figure out how to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's well said. And the other thing I think that, that this project sort of dips a toe into is the, the sort of protecting the mystery behind a work of art. Also, like trying to find space to uh, give more information or more context to the viewer. Um, but also not like feeling compelled to explain every little choice I'm making because sometimes I'm not even sure myself. Um, and I guess I wanted to put it to you, like how do you navigate those things and how you talk about your work? I, the work definitely lives in my mind in a private way. I have my private thoughts and my memories of things I've thought as I worked months or a year or two years on a project. But growing up in Hawaii without a family that was immersed in the arts and living in New York and feeling like an outsider to the art world, I'm used to talking with a lot of people with different backgrounds mm -hmm. than say here we encounter in yeah, galleries. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And so I feel comfortable speaking differently with each person, but still in a meaningful way. And sometimes people only have a couple of seconds to speak or they're willing to be here for three hours with me, which has happened. Yeah. During a studio visit, you mean? Yeah, like a yeah. three-hour studio visit. That's really special. Someone's really engaged. Sure. And 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 so I, I do say things in a way that maybe might engage that person in the way I know them. Like that person's a sculptor, or that person is a teacher, or that person is a writer. And then I, I shape the the conversation. Yeah. If that person's a historian, it'll go another direction yeah, than yeah, say yeah. just a visitor yeah. who randomly came to the yeah. gallery. Or if you speak to children. Yeah. I had to give an artist talk, and I thought it was going to be adults, like artists, art viewers in the audience. I arrive, and they're all children and adolescents of different ages, say from 6 to 18. And their parents, so adults, and artists. But I had never spoke to a crowd so diverse in, in age. Yeah. And I thank God I was the seventh artist of 10 to present. So I had time to rethink how I would talk about the five images that were um, of, of my installation. Yeah. And it was really productive. And the other artists came up to me after and said, oh, that was really great. You know, wasn't it surprising to show up here? And it's like so many young people to yeah. speak to. And it was productive. And then I, I spoke up, I learned something because I was required to speak differently about my work yeah. in, a, in a way that any child or teenager in the audience could relate. I, and I couldn't use words like botany 
like what yeah. botany yeah. like or, what's that what's that we don't know what that is colonialism it, they haven't encountered things with uh they haven't encountered these words before mm-hmm. and so you're i'm only up there five minutes so i but there are certain things where i know they have felt like outsiders yeah. or they feel like they are they feel boxed in something is maybe they understand what it's like not to have the full freedom they desire sure so i so it was really good for me. Yeah, that sounds like a great exercise. I mean, I spoke to my son's pre-K class about what I do, and God, that was maybe the hardest artist talk I've ever given. So I would, I would say that, I mean, in speaking to you about your work the last time I was over, and I mean, you're, per, you, you're a three-dimensional artist that works in sculpture and installation and creating environments. Would you say that's fair as sort of like, you know, broad descriptions of, of your practice? Oh, I think that's a great way to put it, because I previously come from a two-dimensional world, drawing and printmaking, and video, however one would think of video. It's on a screen or a projection. And when you're in this space, you're all, I also don't make sculptures on pedestals or you know a single object that gets shown in a similar way at each venue. So when you're in the space, something productive happens, because you have to look around up down Mm -hmm. you feel some compression with your body there are details you have to look at there's the you know you step back it looks different Mm -hmm. and you can't it's time-based in the very broad sense that it unravels over time because you can't see everything at once right 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 so i think that time the viewer is there with my work they have to renew their sense of looking and their sensory sense their sensory experience with the work or in the world. Yeah. And during that time where they're trying to figure something out or just look or feel, they they I hope they can be they can undergo a transformation. They think something is beautiful, but then there's a paradox. Maybe it doesn't suddenly feel that beautiful or something feels unsettling or right. uncomfortable. Or maybe they thought something something was very delicate. Then they realize it's ruptured and torn apart or something they thought this maybe they thought something was luscious and then it feels that it's rotting and so i think the environment the site-specific nature of the work is a way i can activate the viewer in the space i want an active viewer Uh, yeah 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 and so i uh but that is a, a, a really great way to um talk about what i do yeah yeah i i would say that um you know using this word activating is is a good one because I think about that too because you're you're activating wall space typically in your installations you're activating floor space there's usually something in between like these works in progress here that are I think going to be shown pretty soon are on something that might resemble a, or or act as a pedestal or a stage you know these sort of pallets I know they're part of the sculpture but it's raised off the floor and then there's a, the, another piece that sits on top of it and then you also have these these fencing pieces that some of your ceramic work is sort of looks like it's growing into um so you're 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 using all these different planes for viewing you know do you consider your installations as one like multiple pieces that make one whole work you know these seed pods like one piece this this uh seed transportation uh form as another piece um, and then the fence piece behind. Are they like individuals or do they are they multiple pieces that make up a whole? I definitely 
envision my work a certain way, mm-hmm. but it has to, it's never fully finished in my studio. It has to engage with a space and every space is different. The wall length is different. Yeah. The, the square footage is different. The lighting. And, and whether it's a solo show or a group show. And I think because I'm from a large family, cousins, siblings, grandparents, aunts, uncles, you can never get what you want. You have to be somewhat flexible. Uh-huh. And so it, I'm flexible to what might work in a group show or how I have to shift or change or only show some of the elements. And then, you know, if it's in a, a small gallery and it's all mine, I can do what I want, but it's limited maybe in size. And then uh, it can be a larger space, group show, but I have the entire wall. And so each time I show the work, something productive and creative and interesting happens in negotiating, say, a six-person group show in a small space. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, maybe I will, do, I will arrange things differently, and then it gets a very good response. You know, maybe we could talk about one of the one of the ideas or, or one of the concepts that I think that's been um, kind of in the front, at least for the past couple installations that you've done. You know, this 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 uh, work called "The Savages of the Pacific Ocean" that you referenced, which I think is a wallpaper piece. Correct? Can you talk about maybe how you encountered that and how that sort of influenced this idea or helped you kind of get this this um, you know engine revving, so to speak, for for making all these things that were connected to that? Uh, in 2011, I had a job in Baltimore. So on a weekend, I went to the Philadelphia Museum of Art for the first time. And I was wandering around the museum. And I was a painter at the time. So I was looking at paintings. And But the Philadelphia Museum of Art is wonderful. I was just wandering through it. And they put all kinds of things with the paintings. So there's a Titian but it's with a trunk, yeah. and the Met wouldn't do that. Right. They wouldn't put a Titian with pieces of decorative uh, f- furniture or whatever. And so you get a lot of ideas from these juxtapositions. And I was walking down, probably looking for the Turner, and near the Turner is a room with this enormous panel um, showing scenes of the Pacific from a French point of view. It was, it's an illustration. It's nine panels out of 20 that were formed a panoramic wallpaper from 1805. Uh-huh. And I stumbled into this gallery and I was like, what? What is that? I'm, I'm in Philadelphia. I know what this is. It's very familiar. I knew there was a depiction of a native Hawaiian man and it was basically appropriated and copied from a, uh, a drawing made on the very first European voyage uh, Cook's voyage, his third one that went yeah. to Hawaii. And so I knew that depiction very well. And I, it's, the palm trees and all that was so strange to find in Philadelphia, say in March. Yeah. And so, and amazing. And I looked at it and I said, I have to deal with this. It was, you know, eight feet high. I don't know, like 18 feet wide. And I had dreams then that I would do an MFA. I would do grad school. And I thought, I don't have... I don't know how to deal with this right now. Mm-hmm. I was working in the film business at the time. But when I go to grad school, I will deal with this. And so eight years later, and I've, you know, I'm, I've you know, graduated from Hunter's MFA program about seven months ago. And so finally, that work I've done, it was, it's, I, it's 
showing in Philadelphia now, which really excites me. But I encounter the wallpaper and I try to deal with it. It's it's colonial imagery. Yeah. It's it's methods of appropriation. It's it's artifice. It's the way it takes all these places of the Pacific and depicts them kind of like in a freeze or a theatrical staging. It's full of beauty and appreciation of the natural world, the palm trees, all the vegetation it shows. And then it caught up in a lot of ideology, neoclassicism, ideas of the noble savage, um, ideas of the primitive exotic other. Yeah. And all these things, this wallpaper should surround you in your living room. So it's like- Like a full enclosed space. Yeah, like yeah. Foucault's Panopticon, yeah, so yeah, that yeah. you see it, it's 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 you possess it. You're expected it's yours. to sort of participate in it, like yes. you're part of it yeah. in this room. Yeah, and it predates the World's Fairs. So in 1805, all they could do was bring the drawings to your house, to your home, and uh, 50, 55 years later, they could bring real people and real plants to your home, to Paris, to London. So it, it's it's way of putting the f- furthest places of the world. The, the second new world was the Pacific. Yeah. To bring it to to um, Europe centers. Yeah. And so it, the spectacle, the ide- ideology was very fascinating. And so I tried to work with it in paintings before uh, Hunter. And then at Hunter... I began working in sculpture and was there something that sort of pushed nudged you towards sculpture and, and to put painting down I'm always curious about that that sort of switch that sometimes takes place yeah I thought about that I think because painting didn't work huh. when I I've always had these ideas of working with art history and colonialism and history of the Pacific since I was 18 19 years old but it never worked out doing it representationally and finally I get to Hunter and in the MFA program, I come in as a painter, and the fr- I want to talk about these ideas. And the question is like, why painting? Why is this a painting? Why does why why does it look like David Sally Albert Olin? Why pa- why representation? And these no questions one, are coming from your peers and teachers. Peers, okay. yeah, faculty. Yeah. And so I realized that depicting things representationally with oil paint, I was always hitting up aspects of painting, the history of painting, yeah. and it got in the way. Mm-hmm. And it was also very, very labor intensive. I was painting a very um, tight way at the time and juxtaposed against very brushy, drippy stuff. And I had the fortune of studying with the artist Nary Ward my second semester. And I was doing installation in his class, but with found objects and drawings not really making things with my hands. And I think my exposure to conversations with Nary and being at Hunter and seeing other students working in sculpture made me feel that I wanted to make things with my own hands, but I had not done that since I was a teenager uh, in high school. And so I studied at Alfred University that summer, and then I started to work with Clay. And then handling things with my hands as you said hands have their own knowledge yeah. they do things that the brain didn't predetermine yeah. it's it has its own knowledge so if i handle something with my hands the clay whether i do a casting and then i manipulate it or i do figures and i manipulate it the hands do my hands do their thing which i didn't predetermine and control and so it really 
made things interesting and suddenly there were objects to contend with yeah. that had that 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 spoke in ways uh that to people directly yeah. without having to get into this history of painting like and they look at my work and they didn't they weren't into the history of ceramics or the history of sculpture that's not as deep yeah and so they went straight to it in a really interesting way and someone had said um that when you encounter sculpture you encounter that object like a real person you have a, a different experience with it yeah that was one person's opinion but it's it stayed with me yeah that's great i sort of took us a little bit off track asking about the switch from painting to oh. <laughs> no no this is this is part of it right the switch tangents. from painting to yeah <laughs> tangents they're great from um painting to sculpture but we, you were sort of going through some of the ideas and themes in your work mm-hmm. and um you know, I guess this is maybe a, 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 a good spot to pivot into some of the objects that you make to that sort of tie into the to the savages of, of the Pacific mm-hmm. uh, wallpaper that you used. And, and I know you've you incorporated photographs of the wallpaper that you took in the installation. But what are some of the other other objects that you make to that, that go into this installation that's down in Philadelphia right now? Oh, yes. The, er, the first iteration, yeah. which is different from what's in Philadelphia, is. For that first iteration, I I copied the figures in the wallpaper with clay. And in making them, the process required hollowing and gouging into them and and shaping them with my hands. And in the process, they looked mutilated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They looked like you took classical figures and they were caught halfway merging into stone or into coral, or back into mud. They were caught in this in-between space, which just, because that's just how my hands handle it, or that's how I use the tools. And you know, if I, I don't do fussy, very precise work with clay. I, almost like a child, I just, I'm pretty rough with it. You keep it pretty raw. Yeah, Uh raw, and so just hollowing it, things would break. I would puncture straight through to the other side. And so it became part of the language that talked about, that was a way these ruptured figures commented critically on the wallpaper. Mm -hmm. So then I had them together. So you couldn't look at one without seeing the other. And I don't remember how I first started thinking about breadfruit, which is, breadfruit is a starchy fruit that maybe the size of a small bowling ball that is very common in Hawaii and throughout the Pacific. And I think because I was doing research about Tahiti and about James Cook, I the breadfruit came constantly came up in yeah. the literature. And so I think I had done research and then occurred to me that the fruit was so strange I would cast it. And I did I did a couple of perfect castings. And Nary Ward, my advisor, was the first to come in and see them. It's like, what is this? Oh, this is breadfruit. Can't believe this. And he's, um, he was born and raised in Jamaica and the breadfruit is common in Jamaica. And so he was excited about, them. he was startled to see it in my uh, studio. Okay. And he, and cause the casting they did were perfect. I, uh-huh. you know, and they weren't mutilated like they later became. Yeah. And so he said, this is great. They're like the body because you know, they're very like heads or breasts or orifices. Yeah. They're yeah. very, very, strongly related by just a one-to-one in terms of size as well and so he was very excited and other people saw it they were really interested because the fruit unlike a pineapple or coconut the breadfruit is not common 
you you can't look at a if you if I cast a bunch of pineapples, you'd be oh pineapples. Right. Yeah, we're not going to see a breadfruit at the uh, local whatever grocery yeah. store, right? You have to go to probably a specialty grocery store to find one of those so, or market. Yeah. And so there's a pause. Yeah. People don't know what it is. It yeah. seems like a coconut, but it's not. Right. Is it? It's maybe like jackfruit, but it's not. And so people pause. And in that pause, it's very good for me because mm-hmm. I can't just dismiss it. Oh, I've seen this. I know it. Yeah. There's a little bit of slippage, like not knowing what it is right away for the viewer, I think. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, it was really good. And then, um, Neri had suggested that they can't be perfect. You can't just do perfect castings. That's it's not, don't do that. And like, it's not productive. And so I made probably over the next year close to 300 or maybe 250. And if you do out of maybe 14 castings and I manipulate the clay in the mold, so all 250 or 275 are different. Yeah, they're all unique. They're all unique because I handle them in different stage from moist out of the, you know, soft out of the bag to like nearly brittle before it gets fired. And so the clay reacts differently in all those states as it dries out. Right. And so it was each time I did it, if you do something 250 times, you would force yourself to change it. Yeah. And so it was really good. Sometimes they are like skins. I just peel it out of the the mold and throw it on the floor. It's a, it's a skin. Yeah. The other thing I notice about them is that, that, that some are glazed, some are not. Mm-hmm. Um, so some have like a, like a veneer on them. They're shiny. Others feel like more raw clay. Yeah. Some are more formed. Some are falling apart. Some are just the skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, 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 another consistency um, with the breadfruits is these are always placed on the floor in the installation. Mm-hmm which is also a nice thing. It sort of asks the viewer to sort of like get down and examine. You have mm-hmm. to like change your physical position to sort of take them in. Mm-hmm. And they also like straddle a couple things for me as a viewer. They're on one hand quite beautiful and abstract. And then like you're saying with the clay and how like working it can feel kind of violent and the, the decomposition of some of the the phase in which these are, they 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 like they, they straddle like this line of beauty and and grotesqueness or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think the the accumulation of them, the uh, the sheer amount of them is defamiliarizing, and so when there's so many, it also feels like landscape. Yeah. Or because they are mutilated or rotting they're decomposing they're going through an ecological cycle as if you know they're they're clay but as if they're caught in that it references something uh disturbing because usually we we don't want to look at things at that state and so for me it was wonderful to do critical commentary about the wallpaper through sculpture i didn't the wallpaper itself that i did is has blurs and layers and mismatches but I didn't want to just comment to do, to do critical comment with just image to image. The sculpture enters your right. It enters towards your feet as yeah. if it's going to roll yeah. towards you. Yeah. And it suddenly it's in it's suddenly in your space. And I think your space is the viewer. And I think that's very productive. And all, then it yeah it's it it's that paradox. Yeah. Is it is it appealing? Is it grotesque? Is it and it feels as if very much in. The, the wallpaper could feel of the past, but the fruits feel of the of the present. Yeah, that it might have an odor. It might have been cast yesterday, and the glaze the glaze carries some of the same colors of the wallpaper, or resemble a kind of ocean voyage. Right. They're blues, things that are unnatural. That the f- a fruit would be blue, blue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Another, I think, uh, um, object worth talking about in your installations is is some sort of transporting case. Like uh, I think you call them seed transportation cases, um, which are something that were used historically to transport seeds from one land to another, um, and then that ties into like the the, the sort of like travel of of uh, organic and and uh, botanical material and how that connects to people and how people were moved around. Um, talk about the cases that you build that are, that are uh, part of the installations as well. Yeah, there are the seed. Uh, cases. The ones I've done are larger and they were for shipping little plants. Plants. Um, saplings in this case, so the smallest, most vulnerable plants, or larger plants because they had to be a certain size before they were stable enough for the voyage. And Tahiti to England um, is was the one of the longest possible voyages, like a, over a year. At the time, these at the time of this uh, period of early modern botany of of botanical science and so i came across doing research drawings of these botanical shipping carriers designed specifically to move living breadfruit plants from tahiti to england to be studied there um in 1774 eventually to move a lot of these plants like say 600 on a ship to the caribbean where they could be a very cheap profitable food source on on slave plantations yeah and so the it was such important science to the slave uh planters in the caribbean that they funded a prize it'd be 50 pounds or gold medal if you could successfully bring three living breadfruit plants from tahiti to London, to the Royal Society, to Kew Gardens. It was a design contest. Yeah, and there, wow. there were you. It was an award. So, um, John Ellis, who was a, a well-known naturalist and a, a writer, he published many books about botany. He designed various shipping shipping cabinets, shipping cases, shipping cages that could bring uh, f- breadfruit or yeah. o- other kinds of desirable fruits around the world that they could survive ocean journeys where it's changing weather, ocean spray, you know, it's all micro, uh, micro ecosystem yeah, on yeah. the ship. Yeah. Animals, salt, salt yeah. you know, like, it, it, like my, uh, rats and cats yeah. and dogs on the ship. Insects. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so they, that's why they look strange, like houses or tombs. <laughs> yeah. This one looks just like a, almost like an enlarged dollhouse, mm-hmm. the exterior of it. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't have the floors like a dollhouse might, yeah. but it's got four walls and a, and a pitched roof. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. and I mean, you're taking, you're, you're like reinterpreting it. This one's made out of uh, like metal grating um, and angle iron, right? That's mm-hmm. been powder coated or spray painted white. Mm-hmm. Um, but I imagine the originals were like more ornate. And well, I know this one behind you, mm-hmm. We talked about this last time I was here that was sort of like made by hand and then like through craft and touch made Mm -hmm. to look older than it actually is. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe maybe just real quick before we shift to another topic, I'm curious, like there's a there's a a journey from like how that one lands visually as Mm -hmm. this sort of like it looks old. It looks like it's from a bygone era to this new one that you're working on Mm -hmm. feels more contemporary and. Mm -hmm less historical or something um is there is is the evolution in in like sort of 
how you got from one to the other worth talking about a little bit? Maybe that's interesting. The first one I made that's covered in copper looks like a prison. You know, it's yeah. like a four foot high prison. So it's disconcerting if you're taller than four feet. And it's very strong if you're shorter than four feet, like you yeah. know, a child. Yeah. And so it was very much this prison, which I loved putting up against the wallpaper because the wallpaper is so beautiful. Uh-huh. And then you're alarmed that there's a small golden prison, a... It uh, looks like it's the copper it has this patina, like a, a very um, aged thing. And yeah. there was copper used on ships uh, to protect the plants against parasites in the wood uh, and copper used in botany to protect the plants from the inside of the cases. And so I, that was very much linked to the wallpaper, that history. So I knew that there were other designs. And so I, this new one that I'm working on I want to explore different materials yeah, and it's a different shape and I want to go in a way that was more psychological. This new project doesn't have imagery like the wallpaper imagery in the last project. Right. It's just the sculptural elements. It's just sculptural elements and it's existing as an experiment for me in a psychological space where you can feel like it's, yeah, it's like a dollhouse or a crib or a, um, a, a tomb, like yeah, a, a, a sarcophagus, or like a dog cage. Mm-hmm. And so there are things that are, it, if one is constantly shifting between those things, I think it's very productive and its length, it's uh, four and a half feet. So it feels slightly human sized. Yeah. And so I wanted to have this experience where also you look in, so it's raised and so you look inside. Yeah, and the metal grating allows you to see in. Yeah. Right? So it's got this transparency to it. And it's covered in these paper, clay, flowers, and vines, and which maybe feels fragile. It feels like it could be porcelain um, or something that could break. And flowers, it it feels hard, right, like porcelain. But flowers are soft and colorful, and these are white and almost um, uh, calcified, like um, as if they resemble, to me, they resemble um, dead coral or bone. And so there's something... A strange thing where the white of the uh, aluminum and the white of the flowers and the white of the seed pods um, made everything strange. It's almost like a a leveling out or yeah, um, yeah, unifies uncertainty. It. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's f- yeah, um, and it, it does seem fresh. It does seem new. So it was a way to explore some of the same ideas of displacement or captivity or m- memory or loss. Or also, um, well, the title of this work is, if it stays, it'll be Seedling Carrier, Both Tomb and Womb, because there's a sense that something's protected and something has to have, is required, is forced to have a, a rebirth elsewhere. Yeah. And so there is, a, this carrier is different from the cage like what I made before, because the, this design was to move the most vulnerable plants. So, you know, like a nursery, it's called a nursery, right? You go to Home Depot, yeah. you go to the nursery to buy plants. Yeah. And in Hawaii, the small plants we call keiki, which is the Hawaiian word for child. And small plants are the most vulnerable. They may not survive, but they can't be shipped as seeds. Right. And they're, you know, and so there is something about transporting the smallest, most vulnerable things and also a kind of forced death. You have, one has to, one is separate, separated from someplace safe or someplace one, you know, was familiar with and 
forced to go someplace different. I f- and, and there's a whole spectrum of these experiences. They're not equal. Like yeah. people undergo a lot of trauma. There are his- histories of slavery, mm-hmm. histories of slavery, histories of forced migration. Most of my ancestors um, underwent a kind of uh, migration as field laborers to work on plantations in Hawaii, sugar and pineapple plantations. Where'd they migrate from? They migrated from southern China okay. under very difficult situations, right? The mid-1800s, um, the ending of slavery, and new new sources of labor was found in southern China. And the Chinese laborers moved all around the world from Hawaii, California, Peru, Cuba, Jamaica. And so my relatives... That journey is very interesting to me. It's part of the trade and labor connected to botany and monoculture, agriculture, sugar and pineapple work. And so I think about that and also how we all undergo some experience of this. Uh, As children, you leave someplace safe and you go someplace that's uncertain. And so I think that's part of, a little bit part of empathy, that something you experience can understand a little bit more someone else's experience. You know, maybe we, we'll talk a little bit more about biography. I know you grew up in Honolulu. Uh, do you remember, you know, in your youth, was there anything, were you around artists or, or what sort of visuals you, you were taking in? I'm always curious to hear where artists sort of like, what the gateway is for them. My next project might involve something to do, something about missionaries in Hawaii. Okay. And so... I don't know how many other artists in my generation would talk about their gateway into art this way. It was not my choice, but I had to go to a mission school from the age of four through 10. It was an active mission. It was the Marino Catholic Church. They're based here in Austin, New York, up the Hudson. They have global missions in Latin America and the Pacific and Asia and Africa. And in Hawaii, they had been in Hawaii since the early, like 1908, since the early 1900s. And when I went to school there, it was the tail end of their missionary work. And part of our indoctrination came through drawing Catholic imagery. My sister has a drawing from first grade of a triple crucifixion. I don't remember drawing the, the crucifixion scene that young in, in first grade, but I distinctly remember drawing it in third grade and that I was very uncomfortable because I didn't want to draw a dying, dead body on a cross. And that was the requirement on Good Friday. It wasn't art class. that We were drawing all the time as part of our religious studies. Yeah. And so the, the, my classmate, Michaele, next to me, drew a total Gothic scene. It was like angels carrying coffee cups of blood. It was a, it was, it was bloodbath. So she, in, she invented within it. Oh, he, he yeah, he yeah. invented or within it. And yeah. I don't think he knew, but it looks exactly like a, you know, gothic art yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. angels and the cups of blood and a lot of a lot of you know just a very gory scene and so i wish i had his drawing because it was startling what a what you would do at that age and mine my father is an engineer and had recently taught me in third grade how to draw simple parallel perspective or technical drawing we were just doing cubes at home but i thought i'm gonna push this I'm gonna make this crucifixion 3D. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it 3D because I'm bored. I'm, yeah. You know, yeah. I'm bored in class. Yeah. It was, 
and I don't want to draw the body. Yeah. And so I'm going to draw, I'm going to impress my teacher. I'm going to do a three-dimensional cross. I'm going to hang palm fronds in lieu of the body. And because at church, sometimes they put palm fronds or botanical things on the cross. Yeah. So I hung the, I drew the palm fronds on my three-dimensional cross. And I was so proud. But, you know, these these drawings, I think the nuns kept them. Or I asked my mom, were you alarmed that we would bring these drawings of crucifixions home? She's like, no, 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 no. It's just school. You know, it's Mary, no. And then the next year, fourth grade, I was nine years old. And I had to draw one of the stations of the cross. The first one where uh, Jesus uh, is taken to appear before Pontius Pilate. Yeah. And I remember you had to draw it out of a hat. I mean, it's school, right? So they put you all pick, this. You picked the station out of a hat? <laughs> yes. Oh, you, okay. you know, the, the teacher went around all the stations yeah, in yeah, a yeah. hat or whatever. You had to draw it. I was like, you had to pick up which one you're going to do. And the whole class was going to do it together. And I was like, I can't. But I, why, why didn't I get, you know, the veil, the scene with the veil? That's the best scene. Yeah. And so. I got this is yeah, it's a, mad, that's a magical scene, right? Yeah, and so I got this one. I knew I was upset because it's challenging. There are many figures in the scene. You have the Romans in armor with weapons. You have Pontius on a throne. You have, you know, the Christ figure with handcuffs, or I don't know what. There's there's architecture in the scene. Yeah, and it's like I remember, this is like overwhelming. And so, but I tried really hard, and so I drew the Roman colonnade, the architecture. I did the figures in profile with their armor and their helmets. And I think for me, this is my background. It The art history came very early with yeah. these classic scenes. And there was always something at stake. And you couldn't take it the easy way out. You, I mean, you went to religious school, so you couldn't really do stick figure drawings. And my mother taught art. So I knew that I could do better. I was trained to do better but there was something at stake you had to communicate a story because that was the assignment your the audience was a nun <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're going to be graded on this drawing yeah. and, stake there are some stakes <laughs> and the scenes are challenging yeah multiple figures in action it's it's really challenging yeah. and you know i remember the christ figure was partially nude you had to draw that body partially yeah. nude that yeah. is hard work yeah. and these are i remember and you had then because I was I I want to do things my way. I didn't want to draw Pontius Pilate. There's too many things in the scene. I did. I was interested in architecture, so I wanted to do the colonnade. So I just narrowed it down to like two Roman soldiers and the Christ figure and their movement and their boots and their helmet because that was interesting. And so I think there was a lot of problem solving and a lot of complex scenes and certain stories that had to be communicated. And so I think that is my my training. And it, strange as it sounds, it sounds so strange, but that was it. And we had art class, but art class was very boring. Yeah. It was basically to copy. Uh, the teacher would project something, and step by step you copied it. Do you remember what was projected? Like a, something maybe related. Oh, a frame. You had to draw the frame the way she did it. You okay. measure and draw the frame. This is, I mean... So technical drawing in yeah. a way. And maybe it was like a, a holiday scene, like a Halloween scene. Uh-huh. But our, you would never have classes like this today. They're illegal. But there was one teacher to 36 students. So it yeah, was that's very... that's a big class. Yeah. From the t first grade on, so even in kindergarten. So it was um, authoritarian. Yeah. Well, so I guess how did you get or what brought you to New York from Honolulu? Was there anywhere in between? 
And we can spend a, just a little bit of t- uh, time talking about how you landed in New York. But what brought you here? I always knew I would like New York, but yeah. I didn't want to come here right away. And I went. I left Hawaii when I was 18 to go to college outside Boston, and I worked for a long time in Los Angeles. And then when That's I was right in the film industry, right? Yeah. yeah. And then when I when I was applying to graduate school, I had this feeling that it was the right time to go to New York, and I I would wait till. I had lived other places and traveled other places. And then when I got to New York, I would stay here. And so I think I'm still going undergoing my New York honeymoon. I've been here three and a half years and really happy. Yeah. But everyone says, just wait. You'll, like, you'll hit a wall. <laughs> yeah. You know, I just mentioned, you, you told me before that you worked in, in film in, in L.A. Um, you know, maybe this is a good spot to talk about the survival of an artist and how we support ourselves um, while we get our footing while we're making your work, you know, you know, it's expensive to make work in the city. What sorts of uh, day jobs or side gigs uh, have helped sort of keep you afloat? I think I've gotten to this point. When I first came to New York, I had a good savings mm-hmm. from my film job. And I have basically, since being here, uh, used my entire savings and done some side jobs to, to help me get by. It, but it's basically putting in um, an investment of everything I have to get going until I have uh, steadier, say, teaching work, or steady, yeah. steadier gigs. But Do you teach now? I have taught a little bit, yeah. but I want, I definitely, it's something I want to do. Oh, cool. But it, it, there is something about all the safety and comfort I had with my film job. I almost didn't come to New York for it. So... Because it just seemed like I had built up so much in L.A. Why would I leave it? Right. But then I got to this point where I, I think nothing else matters so much. So you're trained to save for the future, or like any kind of uh, inheritance or something that you might get. It's to save for that distance, for that place down the road. Yeah. But I decided to <laughs> go through everything now as if this is the time when it really matters. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I can identify. I had a day job when I first moved to New York for 10 years, and maybe that's my film job, as you had it mm-hmm. in L.A., mm-hmm. but I stayed at that job maybe six years too long, and I feel like I lost a lot of ground in terms of like taking those risks mm-hmm. and um, kind of making myself uncomfortable by not having a job and like seeing how I problem-solved around that, so it's nice to hear that you're sort of responding in a different way. I think I learned my lesson by spending nine to ten years of a really good period of my life, say from my um, early 20s to early 30s, working 90 hours, 100 hours a week. Ah. I have basically, I can't remember anything. I I don't remember anything from that time period. It's nine years. That could have been my entire life. Yeah. Are you, is it a goal to be to earn uh, a living through your art is that or are you interested in sort of other things beyond um, making stuff you just mentioned teaching Um, you know a lot of people they want to come to New York and you know get a career going through their studio practice is is that a similar is that a goal for you for you yeah I definitely think teaching is important I I really want it because I want the dialogue with students and I want the dialogue with faculty and I feel it's a privilege to talk about art as a job and it's not um it's it's 
uh, it's not the film job. It's it's very meaningful work. It's it has potential to be very meaningful to connect with people, especially young students, undergrads in the foundation classes. I'm really excited by that, and I taught briefly at Cooper Union in the um, art intensive class for high school students, and to be the first person to talk to them about contemporary art or about you know the um, modern art it's it's amazing yeah you can really shape th- things and talk about ways art in ways that are relevant to them and yeah I mean it's I I think I for the film job that experience taught me to kind of crave something um, much more human mm-hmm. um, and art I can't do it alone all day by myself yeah it, it's really hard to be alone so much let's talk about the studio since that's where we're sitting, um, you have a you currently have a work live space, um, but I remember when I came in here was it la- a couple weeks ago? Um, there there's almost very little evidence of sort of domesticity. This does feel primarily like a workspace. I mean, you have the kitchen over here. Um, you have the the pieces you're working on in the front here. You have like kind of storage over here that's got. Uh, a tabletop with some of your breadfruit ceramic pieces amongst other pieces for the floral work. You've got like an office table with computers set up behind you along the windows. And then behind this, this curtain is your bed. Um, and before we turned the mics on, I was, t- we were just talking about like solutions to the, the challenge of being an artist in New York uh, and studio space and the cost of studio space and work live. I know. I mean, maybe let's talk about like, like the work live space and how you're finding it. And if, and, and, if it's, you know, since we're talking about goals, is it a goal to have a dedicated workspace? Are you happy working this way? Or what are the pros and cons of that? I never wanted a live workspace because I had one before in L.A. and I thought it was very lonely. I miss so much Hunter because we had, you know, it's like a dream, like 200 artists with their studios and you come out, you work really hard and you come out and you're like, oh, hi, hi, hi. Yeah, there's a community there. You get a little, you know, a little little you know social hit and then you just go back inside and you're I felt renewed by that the little 10 social hits I had at the elevator the water cooler or whatever yeah so I kind of craved a workspace where I would see other artists throughout the day but I got this live workspace and I shared it with someone else up until just recently and is very much how I am in the world it's very much about work I was you know work work doing the artwork is like you know tremendous happiness for yeah, me yeah tremendous happiness and my it's my medicine and my hospital it's the one sure way i can feel good you know to to do work and so maybe that's why this this space which just used to be shared with someone else it is temporarily it's this will end very soon mm-hmm. this temporary uh, live work situation <laughs> i have but it as you observe devoted to work because maybe sadly but maybe also in a really wonderful way that's um my the the life i chose yeah for sure and i think that yeah it i it's it's very interesting it it feels good in here i'm lucky i think having the light is a privilege yeah you've got great light yeah but it's temporary and hopefully something will happen by this spring where i have a, a a separate workspace and a more affordable mm-hmm. living space. Like walking distance home is, is my dream. Yeah, well, uh, short commute's always nice. Yeah. But the other thing I'll mention is it's very, or- I feel it feels 
very organized in here, probably because you're living here too. And, mm -hmm. you know, the type of person we are sort of dictates the type of space we work in. But mm -hmm. I'm noticing all sorts of parallels between like how you have your shoes lined up below this table and how you have the breadfruit lined up on the, on the tabletop above it. You know, there's all, all this interesting sort of intersection between life and making, which is really great to see. And I imagine that's uh, um, one of the, maybe one of the benefits of, of mm -hmm. living in this space is that like the life is part of, the lived life is part of the artwork mm -hmm. as it finds its own life or something like that. I don't know, does mm -hmm. that make any sense? That's very interesting. I was gonna say I cleaned up recently because I need to take pictures and I had a couple of studio visits and, yeah. and you were coming. And so things are cleaned up, but it's funny that when I tidied up, like the shoes get put with the breadfruit, <laughs> you know, and then like there are strange juxtapositions where the excess uh, clay flowers are next to the breadfruit, like stacked up, they look like coral. Yeah. Or, you know, there, weird things happen. I think, you know, my studio is not like Francis Bacon's. Right. But, you st but there's still juxtapositions. Yeah. And I, yeah, it's, it's tidy because in terms of um, health, living here, I, I clean up yeah. more. Uh, at Hunter, I maybe swept once a semester right but now i vacuum or mop several times yeah if not every day yeah uh maybe let's let's talk about sort of hygiene both emotional and physical what sorts of things on top of sweeping your floor and making sure your live workspace is not um super dusty and you're not like giving yourself some sort of resp respiratory issue um i mean how do you take care of yourself i think it's really important to see people Artists are generally, I mean, artists who do labor-intensive work, paintings or sculpture, are often introverts because you have to be able to stay put in your studio. Maybe it's different if you do performance or film. Yeah. It's a different kind of work. So labor-intensive work requires just staying here, and that's good. But healthy people are socially engaged. They're active, you know. And I, so I do stay healthy by trying to see people and in New York it's good you can go to an opening and you see friends or something or my other friends are artists and so it's nice to you know just share what we're going through so that's the best thing although you know I don't I don't have family here and um living in the studio is good I take breaks to cook mm -hmm. I cook you know all my food and um I New York is healthy because I, I walk all the time uh -huh. and so yeah I think that's my hygiene to stay active to social to be social as I can and um, to have a healthy work, teaching or working for another artist or um, whatever that, that job may be. And to exhibit, I think, keeps one's spirits up yeah. about being an artist. Yeah, that's uh, well said. I agree that uh, the social component of being an artist is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And maybe not just for artists, for everyone. I think we need to, like, especially in this day and age where we're communicating remotely through technology, like mm -hmm. having these sorts of dialogues in person, looking people in the eyes, huge. You know, you mentioned uh, having shows and stuff like that. Maybe we can shift into sort of like mm -hmm. professional uh, stuff. How do you seek out, how do you pursue shows? How do you land? I mean, this is something all artists want to talk about and, and like know people's route in, like how they got their foot into showing spaces. Um, how, did, how, did, how do you pursue exhibition opportunities? Why, some of them have happened through face-to-face -face conversation because say it uh i was in spring break art fair last year and i met people and i was there because i curated a group show of six of us and my work was also there and so people came and they spoke to me and i think that helped them realize that they liked 
I guess, talking with me and they liked the work. Yeah. And then some people saw the work but didn't speak with me. And so they, uh, someone contacted me later. So um, getting to spring break was democratic. You apply and, you know, they, you're, you're, you go through this application process and then you get to have a show and you meet hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. And so that, ha- that happened because of that exposure led to other things. And then because I'm a little bit of an introvert, I often like to go to a gallery not at the opening. And if it's a small gallery, like a you know, Lower East Side or whatever, you can speak with the gallerist yeah. because the gallerist is there. And you have a one-on-one that you will not have at the opening yeah. with the gallerist because yeah. that gallerist is busy. So I can talk with that person. Sometimes in L.A. especially, that person wants to talk because it's rather isolating sitting there all day. In L.A., the galleries were often empty when I would go. Yeah. So, And I have another show because I met the gallerist and we spoke for a long time and she visited my studio and then uh the show in philadelphia they found me on hunter's mfa website and that was a new thing in hunter when i my last year there tim laun and the other people in the art department worked really hard to make a beautiful really wonderful website where anyone in the public could find alums and the current graduating students, and they found me that way. Oh, cool. And so a lot of, so I, so it hasn't been through maybe knowing someone because I'm an outsider, but I've been lucky to have a couple of experiences that gave me a lot of exposure. Yeah. And then uh, those people um, came to see me, and we had really good studio visits. You know, the two-hour visits. Yeah, you know? the long ones. Yeah, and so you two to three hours so they were they thought so I think in those long conversations we realized we're both committed and we share a vision Um, I do have one thing that because I'm a little old-fashioned I do personal emails which some people I met in grad school who are much younger than me don't do but I think personal emails still matter and you send images yeah and they at least look down see the image and maybe they delete the email but something happens there I do think in the past it was better when you send a postcard or a letter, physical letter to a curator. They have to, they're required to look at it and you don't need to know their actual address. It just gets sorted at the museum and they have to look at it and then put it in their recycling bin. And I've got jobs in the film business that way. Just sent anonymous letters. Yeah, that's well said. And something I noticed when we were corresponding over email, you had like human... It felt very human because, you know, uh, other people, it's like one word answers. You like, it was a very sort of formal little note, which I appreciated. So thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, what about, you know, before we turn on the mics, we were talking about, you know, you've, you've, you've had a, um, a lot of exhibitions and in, in, in academic institutions and um, artist run spaces. Um, and then there's the commercial space too, but I mean, is getting your work into commercial spaces a goal of yours or do you, do you like lean towards one of these spaces more than the, than the, than another? Um, where do you see your work going or where do you want to steer your work? Most of all, I want my work to be public and just like we were talking about, um, giving a presentation to young people. Yes. A museum is amazing because it has great diversity they bring student groups you know you have tourists and so my ultimate goal is to show in public institutions like museums however however i get there i'm open to whether it's a commercial gallery where i can you know they can promote me to that place or whether it's exposure to 
academics and students at university gallery settings or university museums um, because those art historians or faculty, they teach and they curate and they lecture and involved at museums. Or if the artist-run spaces give me more space to experiment, an artist-run space doesn't quite have the, you know, they operate a much lower budget. They're more open to experimentation, installation, and they let they maybe are more likely to let me do something new in the space. And so then I can really develop my work given that opportunity. So maybe all of them are useful along with the text, reviews or academic writing, because the dialogue has to be public, has to be in print. There has to be a kind of extended conversation. If I'm not in the room with you, which I can't always be, right. I'm very grateful for the writing to be there. Yeah. And so I, I do sell, I do sell some of the ceramics and in a way, they're like my um, little ambassadors yeah. that I can, part of me can be in these different places, but also that when someone explains what the, this object is, they talk about the larger installation it was part of. Right. So I, so the breadfruits are a good example that people have bought and I've been very grateful for. Um, some of the figurative pieces. I mean, for this current work that I have in progress, I don't really see parts of this um, as individual objects yet. But then there is another component that it can exist separately. So I think this was an earlier question, which maybe I didn't answer because we were on a tangent. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, they are the I whole versus the, whole, the pieces. <laughs> the whole no, no, versus I, the pieces. I was about to bring that. <laughs> I'm glad that you picked that up because I was yeah. about to bring that thread back in. Yeah, yeah, like like when you're working in installation and it's a whole, and you're in a commercial setting, how do you decide? Do you break it up? Is it all one thing? Mm -hmm. I know, like some artists are in a position where it's all or nothing versus mm -hmm. when you're first starting out, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, how do you reconcile that? Well, I, I'm very practical and I recognize that galleries have bills to pay. People deserve their, deserve to be paid properly with their salaries. Um, they have bills, they have to f repair the lighting. They have to pay rent, they have to uh, host writers ensure and the place. ensure the place yeah. and so I want to make sure I can do my part when a gallery shows me or is behind me I do my part like you know I do the best job I can do with the artwork I um, am there whenever they need me to be there I answer the emails promptly you know if they have a question I answer promptly you're professional <laughs> and so <laughs> and also I am happy to make things that also can sell because they need to pay their bills. And then also I think maybe collectors are invest can invest themselves when they have something. But I welcome the ninety nine percent of other people who don't buy. Yeah. Who look a long time. Yeah. And some people look a long time and they buy something, yeah. which is amazing. Yeah, that's great. Um let's talk about when you're in here making it's 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 like a joyful uh, psychic moment like you're it's therapy called it a hospital um, um, it's really sort of refreshing and recharging can maybe we can go back into sort of like when you're satisfied mm -hmm. by your work um, how you hold on to that satisfaction and how you like keep it with you because like you know that sort of you know the artist's mind wanes between like oh, I'm feeling good about things and other times I'm like God what am I doing <laughs> how do you how do you how do you how do you hold on to that sort of like positivity moving forward. I realize 
Hospital doesn't have positive connotations. <laughs> no, but I, under, I understood what you meant, for it sure. Spa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Retreat. Yeah. I, in the last year and a half, or maybe the last two years, I feel really, really good. There's something that with oil painting, at the end of the day when I used to paint, sometimes I was so exhausted, paint 10, 12 hours, the exhaustion doesn't let, allow me to see things properly. So I'd take a rag and I would take it all away. Yeah, even after all that all that labor and hours. It yeah. was really bad. And then, so something, I mean, clay, you can do that too. Um, like I can just smash it, right? But something about clay or other things, I just let it be. So I maybe because of the material I'm working with, I feel really good. It's also very satisfying with just hands. The um, handling material with my hands. Yeah, the tactility of it. Is very satisfying, and it's more physical than say, handling a pencil or a brush or the palette. I mean, that the palette was actually some of my favorite part. Mixing paint yeah. was my favorite part, but handling r- the material in a sculpture way is very satisfying. Um, and so I think that keeps me. That's very rewarding, in and of itself, and something what my hand does at clay is very satisfying to my eye and to the con- concepts and ideas in my work. Um, it's hard on the body, though. It's hard on the... There's a lot of fatigue with sculpture because it's um, it's heavy. You have to do a lot of physical labor. So that can be physically exhausting, but I think healthy in the long run if one doesn't push oneself too much. But I do feel so much joy and happiness. I do remember feeling stress earlier uh, as a... Uh, younger artist or prior to Hunter um, but n- the last year and a half is so much contentment and very, I feel very lucky yeah that's great to hear this is kind of like a recurring sort of we're, uh, you know tail end of the conversation question but I always like to hear what artists are excited about what the last great piece of culture that they experienced was uh, does anything come to mind when I put that question forward well, the next show I have to see, so I haven't seen it yet, but is the Lucio Fontana show at the Met, at the Met Breuer, because I'm really interested in seeing his ceramics. I've seen very, very few in person. So that's a future show. So if <laughs> we were to record this a week from now, yeah. I would have said that, probably would have said the Fontana. But uh, as you're taking out your equipment, I was reminded of the Kevin Beasley installation. And once I saw Kevin Beasley's install with the, the, a cotton gin motor in the soundproof vitrine and the second room that was almost empty except for the speakers and the the sound mixing board i mean that installation was is probably th- the best thing i've seen of contemporary work and i can't even think of anything else right now in terms yeah. of contemporary work that um that for me was as strong i think because i see what he's doing in dealing with objects of the past and that the incredible important need to deal with them again again and again over and over again today that there is that it is endless that one needs to deal with history endlessly is a good responsibility to have yeah to know that there is no end and that's fine and i what he did with the cotton gin in the soundproof vitrine with the all the different microphones on it i thought was amazing in my mind it made me think of adolf eichmann on trial and the kind of glass box he was in on trial in israel 
And so I felt that cotton gin motor was on trial inside that glass box. And strictly formally, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, that's, I mean, you, the way you're describing it when I mm-hmm. came in with like, uh, you know, the, the, the different types of mics and stuff, just as a form, you're really, mm-hmm. you're really impressed by. So it was nice to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and the use of yeah. sound, yeah. you know, sound with sculpture is, is, is like, you know, that hasn't been, that's just, you know, it needs to, more has to happen with that. And that the isolation of sound from the, the source is, was yeah. fascinating. Yeah, that's well put. What's on the horizon for you? What projects do you have coming up? Um, that you want to talk about? Mm-hmm. I mean, I spoke at length about that Catholic um, <laughs> origin. It's crazy. Yeah. And then after after age of ten, I went to another school where it wasn't. You know, we didn't have that. Yeah. The the ideology anymore. So, but I am thinking about Fontana's crosses, the crucifixions he did, because he basically they're so abstract and they're so manipulated by his hand. They almost seem botanical or like fruit skins. And so I have been thinking about those crucifixions he did and how they're just crazy dripping with glaze. This is the painting background. I yeah. love I love the working with glaze. And so I've been thinking about how I can do my own versions which which speak to Fontana and the missionary stuff in Hawaii and the botanical and how you can take these forms, these figures or these symbols and basically force them to merge with the earth and with the, you know, the natural world again, and to make them strange and unrecognizable. And so I was thinking about ways that I might also do research um, about the school. I went to Marino because it's based here in Austin, in New York, and they have archives. Um, so anyway, those, those things, so taking the botanical carriers, the shipping carriers for the plants, and the next version will, I hope, merge with a kind of, story about missionaries because missionaries also brought plant products with them wherever they went a lot of the people who traveled and planted seeds and did their gardens were priests and you know they're missionaries basically you know everyone traveling they're soldiers sailors or missionaries yeah so that's great i mean i think that's like a like a a great sort of path to start heading towards um well rochelle this has been a wonderful conversation. I love all the anthropology and history in the work and the tactility and the forms. Um, and it's been great to, to talk about your ideas with you. So thanks for participating in this project. Thank you so much. It's really great, Joe. We've made it to the end. A quick reminder that you can learn more about each contributing artist Find links to their online portfolios and access the archive of past recordings by visiting deepcolorpodcast.com. Be sure to share this project within your community and rate and subscribe in the Apple Podcast directory or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and check back soon for a new episode.